It's one thing to tell your own story. It's another thing to take responsibility for telling someone else's life. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Margot Lee Shetterly wrote the book Hidden Figures about people she grew up around, a group of black women mathematicians who helped catapult the U.S. space program to success. She talks about what inspired the book and how she adapted it to a blockbuster film. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events featuring Aspen Institute leaders. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Shetterly writes about how a group of mathematical geniuses went from teaching math in the South's segregated schools to working with NASA. As a child, Shetterly didn't know how groundbreaking these women were. She just knew them as neighbors and church moms. She says growing up around them influenced her storytelling. The book describes the barriers and brutalities the women faced under Jim Crow. Later, we hear from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, another award-winning writer who writes about race and identity. Her most recent book is Americana. But first, Margot Lee Shetterly is interviewed by Michelle Norris. Norris is a former NPR host and directs The Bridge, the Aspen Institute's program on race and cultural identity. Their conversation was part of a lecture series held at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Here's Norris. So I love that you found the I in history. You were able to tell this story because it was so personal to you. Did that make a difference in the way that you were able to render this story? That it wasn't just, you were writing about people that you saw at the grocery store growing up. These were members of your community. Did that give you a different responsibility in writing the book? And did it allow you to write this book in a much more personal way? Uh, I, yeah, I think there's no question that um, the first thing you feel is a greater sense of responsibility. Um, because, you know, these are people that know where I live. They know where my parents live. Um, <laughs> you know, these are people that I knew growing, growing up. And it's one thing to tell your own story. It's another thing to take responsibility for telling someone else's life. Um, and so from the very beginning, I certainly felt a tremendous sense of responsibility. Um, but I also, you know, there were, there were bits and pieces of the story that I was able to fill in because I had grown up there and because I knew not just these women, but the community they came from. You know, there were things that you couldn't find in a document and co connections that you would have made simply because you couldn't remember that, that things were any different than, than in, this, in the story. So um, I, I think that that was, that was also something that I was able to, to bring to that. And even this idea of NASA, which, you know, I mean, I grew up, the first like children's Christmas party I went to was the NASA Christmas party because they'd have these Christmas parties with the NASA Santa and, you know, some... <laughs> What did the NASA Santa look like? He, uh, he, like, a he looked like? He looked like, you know, your standard Santa, but, you know, he probably, you know, knew how to work a slide roll. That's the <laughs> difference. Um, and so, but there, you know, I think there were things like that that I just grew up with that, um, that it sort of just flowed very naturally into the narrative and allowed me to, to close gaps where there may have been gaps. You know, I always have believed that history finds the right conservator. 
And this history fell into absolutely the right hands. And you could not have possibly have known that when this book and this movie arrived, that it would arrive almost like a tonic, a balm for this moment where we need to see an example of people working together. You know, the idea that we don't, we will not get there if we don't all work together. Uh, and I wonder, you, you talk about looking beyond, which also could have been the title for the book in some ways. It, it could have been, yeah. What do we as a society need to do to look beyond in sort of a big way so that we understand the, the right equation for creating access and opportunity for all? It, yeah, I mean, that, that is a great question. Um, you know, there, there's something that Katherine Johnson told me, I mean, she's, she's actually told many people, um, it's something that her father said to her when she was young. It's like one of the first things her father said, kind of a, a, a philosophy of life, really. And so when you ask Katherine Johnson, who, you know, I, I saw a month ago, like she's still this amazing, brilliant, you know, tremendous person. And still so elegant. It's just, you know, just, you just, you, you know, we will never be in 20 lifetimes as elegant as Katherine Johnson. She is, she is just a just an amazing person. And, um, you know, so people have asked her, listen, how were you able to do what you did? You know, you're this black woman in the segregated South. This is, uh, a, you know, a little bit of pressure. You know, you're telling your bosses that you can, you're going to do the math to send the guy into space and bring him back safely. And she always reminds you, it's one thing to send him out into space, but you got to bring him home. Right. <laughs> how did you get the confidence to do that? And she says, well, it's really easy, you know, because everything's easy for her. It's like hard for the rest of us, but, you know, things are very easy for Katherine Johnson. And she said, it's really easy. It's just like my father told me. You are no better than anyone else, and no one is better than you. And, you know, she says that, and you're kind of like, okay, let me, you know, you are no better than anyone else, no one is better than you. She's like, that's what my father said, and that is what I brought to this job. You know, and what that meant was not only did she have the confidence to go in and expect that she was as good as everyone else there, but it also gave her something else, which was really the expectation that other people would see in her the excellence and be able to treat her as she should be treated. You know, she always brought that generosity to her work and the workplace. And I think that, you know, I've spent so much time thinking about that, that her father gave her, you know, which was a gift, and that she gave me, which is a tremendous mm -hmm. gift. Um, and I think that, that there is a lot to that, this idea that there is common ground, that there is common humanity, that we can find overlap and that we can give each other that space to be generous and to be civil and to disagree without demonizing. Um, and so that, that is one of the things that I, I, I take a tremendous amount of hope from that. Um, and uh, As do we. As, it's, it's really, but that, that, is, that is one of, you know, if you can call it a secret, because it's, you know, we can say that, it's a mantra, it's, but it's kind of a secret. It's Katherine Johnson's, it's one of her secrets to And it's so simple, success. right? It's, it's very simple, and yet it is extraordinarily dif difficult to put into practice. I want to peel back the layer a little bit and talk about how you were able to do research 
And you have said that you are so thankful for black newspapers. Absolutely, yeah. Because if not for the black newspapers, the Pittsburgh Courier, which featured that wonderful spread on Katherine Johnson early, um, newspapers like that that were telling these stories when the mainstream legacy press at that time was not paying a lot of attention to this, it would have been much harder for you to do this work. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of the black newspapers and how you, how you did the research to really be able to put the finer point on some of the, the, really the small details in these stories? Yeah, you know, it, it wouldn't have been just harder. It would have been impossible to do the work without the black newspapers. The black newspapers cataloged even, you know, tiny details of black life. Um, I found Mary Jackson's wedding announcement. So when you read in the book and you you're, ask yourself, well, how did she know what Mary Jackson was wearing at her wedding? Well, I actually did wonder that. <laughs> <laughs> I've read it in the Norfolk Journal and Guide, of course, you know, um, which, is, which was one of the major black newspapers. It was the primary black newspaper for, uh, for Virginia, for Southeastern, you know, that part of Virginia. Um, I, you know, so for example, Katherine Johnson, she was the one who told me about Dorothy Vaughn. I had never heard of Dorothy Vaughn. Um, my father really didn't know Dorothy Vaughn because he was still very early in his career when she retired. And so Katherine Johnson said, oh yeah, Dorothy Vaughn, she was the head of the West Computing Group, and she was the smartest person I ever knew. <laughs> so, <laughs> when Katherine Johnson says that, <laughs> you listen and you take notes, so I did. Um, and then, you know, I, fortunately, the, the Journal and Guide is digitized and online, you can, you can search all of the archives from 1919, I think it was uh, started being published. So I put Dorothy Vaughn into you know, the search box and out comes you know, a lot of output, but among that was uh, just a tiny little article from December 1943, the first week of December 1943, saying Mrs. D.J. Vaughn, uh, math teacher at the high school, this was in the Farmville, Virginia section, math teacher at the high school has left to take a job at Langley Field. And when I read that, I, you know, I nearly fell on the floor because I knew I had found the beginning of my book. Like that was the beginning of the story of you know Dorothy Vaughn leaving her home in Farmville during World War II to take this job. And, and that simply, you know, that would not have been possible um, without the black press, which, you know, which maintained also something called the double V campaign. Mm -hmm. um, double victory, a V, you know, really, really to create enthusiasm for the war, you know, among the black community. Um, two victories, one victory over America's enemies abroad, the second victory against prejudice and discrimination at home. And so that was really the spirit that these women brought to their work, serving their country and really serving our country's truest ideals. And holding those tenets, that was part of the Double V campaign also, is we were fighting for democracy overseas and really forcing people to question whether we were making true on that promise. If we were really, really believing in democracy here at home, that was the question. You are listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. 
On the show today, author of the book Hidden Figures, Margot Lee Shetterly. She's interviewed by Michelle Norris, a former NPR host. Norris now leads a program about race and cultural identity at the Aspen Institute. Now, back to their conversation. You talked to some of the scientists who work alongside these women, and I wonder what those conversations were like with the wisdom of time and living in a very different America now. If they talked a little bit about regrets or memories or you know what they brought to that conversation, the, the people who worked alongside these women who sat at a different area in the mm-hmm. cafeteria, who left and walked into a very segregated America as soon as they left the confines of Langley. What did they tell you? Well, first the thing that they always said about these women is that they were so smart. You know, I mean, this is, that was really um, just uniformly the respect for these women, their accomplishments, um, the work, the, the work ethic that they brought to their jobs. Um, that, that was absolutely without fail um, something that, that they mentioned. Um, but, you know, particularly among, I would say among the white women who worked as computers in those early days, um, there was definitely, um, you know, I think especially from women who came from New Jersey, there were a lot of women who came from the New Jersey College for Women, um, other places, um, did express, you know, regret or, you know, explicitly talking about um, their, their feelings, or, you know, about the segregation um, that the women went through at that time. That they weren't able to develop friendships or a certain degree of camaraderie with them, probably because of that color line. Uh, that's true, although there were certain women who, you know, there were a lot of very progressive people uh, back then who did find a way, even at the risk of uh, drawing social ire, um, to make personal relationships and invite the women to their homes and see them socially. I mean, it, it certainly wasn't everyone or even close to it, but um, there, there were, you know, there were some real progressive people there working at NASA. This is one of the things I loved about the book is the friendship and the way that they all leaned on each other and that they, that truly, they practiced that mantra also, that if we don't work together, we're not going to get as far as we could possibly go. We have questions from um, members of the University of Minnesota community. Can I include some of these in our conversation, please? This is from Kathy Olson, um, and this comes to us via Facebook. She says, Katherine Johnson was recognized as exceptional while while she was a young girl in school and provided an opportunity to advance in her education. In this current era, where education is not only underfunded but also undervalued, how do we make education and being educated something to strive for and be proud of? And as I ask this question, I think of something that um, the New York Times reporter, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, once tweeted, and it's always stuck in my mind. She says, it's quite possible that the person who is best qualified, at least in terms of intellect, potential intellect, to find a cure for cancer is stuck in a struggling public school somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So her question, how do we make education and being educated something to strive for and to be proud of, and how do we actually move education to the top of the national agenda? 
I mean, one, one of the things I think is that we have to see education as everyone's problem. You know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's sufficient for people who live in places with excellent public schools or private schools, the wherewithal to send their kids to private schools, to assume that that's the end of their responsibility. Um, you know, education <laughs> benefits all of us. Having an educated population is something, you know, the benef that benefits all of us, and we all pay the cost, whether it's an explicit cost or an implicit cost, mm -hmm. um, when we don't deliver on that to all of our, our, our children. So I, I think part of it really has to be that it is a shared responsibility and not just one of, I have mine and you get yours. That, that's not good enough. Uh, thank you, Kathy, for that question. This is from Maria Arboleda. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Arboleda. And she says, she's uh, from Minneapolis, and she asks, what can we as a society do to change the perspective that exists regarding women of color? that we are not motivated, that we are not leaders, that we can't be successful in fields like math, science, technology, and entrepreneurship, when we know so many women have been the backbone of so many successful projects that exist today. And as I read this question, I think about many scenes in the book where these women stood up for themselves. And to do so is sometimes difficult because you are labeled as someone who has a little bit of an attitude. Mm -hmm. You might be labeled as that person who is perhaps the angry woman of color. <laughs> so how do you walk that, she's, she's asking, how do you walk that fine line when we know that so many women have been the backbone of successful projects, some of them known and many of them hidden, as you write in this book? I think she should pick up a pen and start writing. I mean, <laughs> the... <laughs> she's, she is obviously someone who knows what we all know, which is that there is a rich history, there are many talented people everywhere, um, but we have to tell the stories, you know? If somebody like her thinks that it is her responsibility to tell the story, then there is no one better to tell the story. You know, she, I think, I really, you know, when I said that I, I didn't understand how powerful it is to tell a story, I really did not understand how powerful it is to tell a story. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is almost a magical thing that happens when you see something and you put it together, not just as facts, but as a story. You know, I mean, we process information, we remember information so much better if it's in a story form. And I think that we have to tell those stories, you know, until we have the entire spectrum of black experience, not just this tiny slice or tiny slices, which is usually one, you know, awful extreme and one first and only exceptional extreme when most of life happens in the middle. Yeah. The power of narrative. The power of narrative. And I, I certainly see that in, in the work that I do. And much like uh, Zora Neale Hurston mm -hmm. was an author, but she was also a, an anthropologist. Yes. And when she went to the South, she realized that it was hard for her to get people to share their stories, but if she gave them a story, they gave her a story. Mm -hmm. And so by giving us a story, it makes, perhaps, it makes it easier, perhaps, for people to share their own stories. And I guess that um, is a preamble to the question from Hannah Youngquist, <laughs> who apparently is in the audience. Um, 
and she is an undergraduate student at the College of, in the College of Liberal Arts here at the University of Minnesota. She says, what advice would you give to students who want to do recuperative history? I like that phrase, recuperative history, like hidden figures in their own fields. What questions should they ask? Is there any institution too big or too small to challenge the way hidden figures challenges us to look at NASA? There is nothing too small and nothing too big for a good story. Um, so hidden figures, I mean, I, I really loved doing the work, um, this recuperative history. And it really was recuperative history. You know, it's like little bits and pieces of the story were everywhere. They were in national archives and the NASA archives and, you know, the archives of, of federal agencies that haven't existed for 50 years. You know, and I go to the archives and I, you know, the, the guy would bring up this box that had obviously been waterlogged, and I was the first person to look at these documents since the box had been, you know, taken out of whatever agency it was. Um, you know, it was, they're just pieces of, of, like, bringing people to life, you know, which is really what this is, bringing their stories and their lives back to us. Um, you know, there, there is so much satisfying work there. And there's so much need for that. You know, there are so many different stories out there um, that will benefit from the talents of somebody like this who is, who is patient enough and curious enough to sort of sift through, you know, these tiny little pieces of history in a lot of different places and bring them back to life so that we can enjoy that work. So, um, so it can be tedious, but keep going. It is, it it's is, worth the time. you know, it is, it is tedious, but it is so, it is, it is a delightful process, you know, to spend that time, to, to get into a time capsule, you know, really to get into a time capsule and to transport yourself back to 1943 or 1933 or, you know, whatever it is, 1733, through the, these bits and pieces of, of documents and, and other people's lives. And you're, it is, it is such an imaginative work, you know? I mean, it, it is, I found it to be uh, just so incredibly creative. And if I, if I didn't have to deliver a book, I would still be in the archive. <laughs> <laughs> so the clock is telling us that we're out of time, so I'm just gonna ask two very quick questions. Um, first from Maram Falk, what did you find most surprising in your, in your research? One thing that you found most surprising? How many women there were. This is not a story of first and onlys. There were so many women, and they were doing research. They weren't just occupying seats in an office. Um, you know, these women rolled up their sleeves, and they were absolutely critical to the work that was being done. And you say in the book that if you had more time, you think you could probably have found 25, 30 more of them. I, I'm really, what I'm trying to do now is really identify as many of them, of all of the women, not just the black women, all of the women, and really trying to get a grip on the numbers of who they were, you know, how many there were, where they were working, what they were doing. And Jamie Walters, who's an undergraduate student here at, at the U University of Minnesota, wants to know, will there be a Hidden Figures 2 in the works exploring another incredible untold story in history? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually in the process of working on the next two books. Um, <laughs> So Hidden Figures is part of a trilogy. I, I found, um, I mean, I found, gosh, I don't even know how many stories I found. There were so many stories, but um, there were two in particular that kind of captured my imagination. 
Um, neither of them have to do, well, one of them kind of does have to do with science, um, and it has an international angle. Um, the other really looks at African Americans in business um, and entrepreneurship, the same way this one looked at science. Um, they all take place mid-century, which is a time period I'm really fascinated by, and they all have to do with race and identity and work and social mobility. Um, so the next thing is in the works. <laughs> Margo, thank you so much for birthing this story. Thank you very much for bringing it to us. You should know that there's an effort to make sure that hidden figures will be distributed to high schools around the country. Wow. That the studio system is, is working very hard to do that. So thank you very much. And I think, if I'm allowed to speak for both of us, I think that we want you all to look for the hidden figures in your own lives. Absolutely. And capture their stories, record them for posterity. It is part of your wealth. Thank you very much. That was Margot Lee Shetterly and Michelle Norris speaking at the University of Minnesota in February. Shetterly wrote the book Hidden Figures, and Norris leads a program at the Aspen Institute called The Bridge. Next we hear from another award-winning author. Chimamanda Adichie's book Americana is a national bestseller. It's a love story about race and identity. Her conversation with Mary Louise Kelly happened at the Washington Ideas Forum in September of 2016. Kelly writes for The Atlantic and reports for NPR. Here's their conversation. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Mamanda. Thank you. We just introduced you as an author. Um, I noticed in an interview, when you were asked what you do, you said, I, I think of myself as a storyteller, mm. but I would not mind at all if someone were to think of me as a feminist writer, and we're gonna get to that. I'm gonna ask you about that. Uh, can I see a show of hands who has read any of her works, including her most recent novel, Americana? Wow, a lot of us. Uh, if you haven't, you should. Uh, it is this, it's a love story, and it's centered on race and identity, and hair, um, and we will get to some of those things too, but I wanna start with one of the other themes that runs through it, which is the theme of movement, of immigration, of moving between different worlds. It explores the immigrant experience through Nigerian eyes. For those who haven't read it, would you give us just a quick snapshot of your protagonist and, and how she sees America? Oh, that's always hard to do. She, her name is Ifemelu, she leaves Nigeria, um, to come to the US to go to college and she goes through many experiences. It's, it's very hard to, to summarize. I think one of the things I wanted to do with Americana was to write about leaving home, write about immigration, but not in, not in the way that I think is familiar for, in general, for the continent of Africa. I think immigrants from Africa are often thought about as people fleeing all kinds of peril. 
um, war, poverty, but, but that's not the immigration that I'm familiar with. I'm mm -hmm. familiar with the kind of immigration that is really about people seeking more choices. So they're not starving, they're, you know, they're welfare, they have jobs, but they want more. And I, think, and I think that's what has propelled a lot of the immigration in our history as human beings. And I sometimes feel that Africa as a continent isn't really allowed that. So if Emelu isn't dying, she's not, there isn't a war, that, but she wants more. There's kind of that longing for sort of wanting to escape the familiar. And she comes to the US, and one of the things that she discovers is identity. She discovers that she's black. She hasn't thought of herself as black in Nigeria because she hasn't had any need to, because most people because in Nigeria it's majority black, are black. So everybody there is. Um, so, Identity in Nigeria, which, which is also quite fraught, is sort of religion, it's ethnicity, but, but not race. And in, in the U.S., she discovers that she's black, and it, it becomes, for her, a kind of... Um, I like to think of it as an awakening, but also it gives her a subject to write a very funny, acerbic blog um, about race in America and about what it means. And, and, and it's sort of her reflections on blackness as a non-American black. I want people to know that, that you have a personal stake in some of this conversation about migrants and movement and immigration. Um, your parents were displaced and lived as refugees for three years, is that right? Would you tell us my the parents, story? Well, my parents um, went through the Nigerian Biafran War um, in 1967 to 1970. So they left, they had to flee their home in southeastern Nigeria because which was in Biafra, because the Nigerian army was um, advancing. And so they lived in different towns as refugees for the three years of the war. And then at the end of the war, they were able to go back home. But their experience and just their talking about it kind of made me, has made me, um, I don't, I'm going to say empathetic, but that's not it. But it's just made me care about the subject of refugees. And it's also made me question the way that we talk about refugees. In what way? The way that I think that we, I think that it can often be dehumanizing to think of refugees as just refugees. Because people are complex beings. So when I think about my parents in the three years that they were refugees, but that's not all they were. You know, they were also thoughtful, educated, kind people who had dreams and hopes. And, and I think that sometimes in the debate about refugees, we forget that. And I think it shapes the way we think and talk about it. What role do you see for a writer telling a story like that in terms of shaping, I guess shaping the narrative as we understand it, but mm. also, you know, we, I introduced you as a storyteller. Mm. Stories have a tremendous power to give people dignity. Yes. I think, I think the role of a storyteller in, in subjects of the sort is to humanize, is to remind us that people are first human beings before anything else, you know, before being immigrants, before being refugees, before they're human. And, and I think it's important, it's not just because we, we should do it to feel good about ourselves, but also it's actually quite practical. I think if we think about the humanity of these people, then it shapes the way we formulate policy, it shapes the way we solve problems, um, it shapes the way we understand things. If we think about people who who want to come to this country, for example, just as immigrants, without knowing what the, you know, what are their dreams, what are their motivations, and, and also on the other side, what hurts their dignity, what wounds their pride, those things matter. Yeah. I wondered as I read Americana, 
and to what extent the, the blog that your protagonist writing is somewhat channeling your own experience as someone who came to America from Nigeria and had all of these new experiences. And I wonder, do you keep writing that in your head a little bit? I mean, as you look at the current debate over race in this country, for example, what would your protagonist have to say about it? Do you know, I, I think of the, the blog in Americana, I wanted it to be funny. I wanted to poke fun. Because I think that the many things about race, the way that race manifests itself in this country, that is actually quite funny. And so I hope that people would laugh. And I'm always happy when people say, oh, that really made me laugh. I think what's going on now just doesn't give me room for humor. I think that I am so, I'm so emotionally exhausted hmm. by the murders that I couldn't possibly, I don't think I can find any space to wrap humor around what's been happening in the past one year, two years. So I think if I had to write, I mean, I have often thought about continuing the blog, but it probably wouldn't do much with race because I'm just exhausted. I am, um, you know, watching the last video, I just found myself crying. And yeah, yeah I think there's something about it that makes me, um, it's not just that you shoot a man who's unarmed, it's that you handcuff him when he's clearly dying. There's something about it that is so unforgivably inhumane. And, and to think that what that's happening, that his race is part of the reason. I really do think that one of the terrible things about racism in this country is there's a sense in which blackness isn't really seen as fully human in many quarters. And I think that's why these things are happening. And I think that's why a man who is dying is handcuffed. That's why a boy who is dead is left on the street for hours. I mean, there's something about it that is just, it makes me wonder what, what's happened to that part of us that is good. Do you think you'll be able to find a way to write about that? It sounds like something you're struggling with, and as a writer, I imagine that's one of the ways you process, is, mm. is finding a way to, to pour that onto the page. Yeah, you know, many times I've wanted to and I've started, but I almost always feel that language has failed me. Mm. And um, so I don't know. I don't know. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Nigerian author Chimamanda Adichie wrote the book Americana. She's discussing it with NPR reporter and editor for The Atlantic, Mary Louise Kelly. Their conversation took place at the Washington Ideas Forum. If you like today's show, check out the episode Poetry, Justice, and Alienation. Can art tackle some of the most difficult social justice questions we face today? Poets Elizabeth Alexander, Claudia Rankin, and Juan Felipe Herrera weigh in. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes. Now, here's the rest of Mary Louise Kelly's conversation with author Chimamanda Adichie. Another thing I want to ask you about, which is love. Mm. Those of us who have read your books know you write about love. And they right do. before we came out on stage, I handed Chimamanda, this is my very dog-eared paperback copy, um, because my mother has stolen the hardback and refuses to give it back. 
There was a passage that I was going to point out and ask her to, to comment on, but I wonder if I might ask you to read to us. Sure. Just one little bit, and I'll, I'll okay. set the stage by saying this is her protagonist is a very young woman in Nigeria meeting a man and starting to fall in love. So before I read, I just wanted to say, um, I was telling Mary Louise that that's the best thing I've heard today, or maybe in the month that her mother stole. <laughs> stole in the book. It's, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> so I'll just read. Um, she rested her head against his and felt, for the first time, what she would often feel with him, a self-affection. He made her like herself. With him, she was at ease. Her skin felt as though it was her right size. She told him how she, was, how she very much wanted God to exist, but feared he did not. How she worried that she should know what she wanted to do with her life, but did not even know what she wanted to study at university. It seemed so natural to talk to him about odd things. She had never done that before. The trust, so sudden and yet so complete, and the intimacy frightened her. They had known nothing of each other only hours ago, and yet there had been a knowledge shared between them in those moments before they danced. And now she could think only of all the things she yet wanted to tell him and wanted to do with him. Thank you. What you can't see from the audience is that page is marked up with multiple colors of ink because I've gone back and read it. And to me, the mark of a great writer is being able to cross barriers and lines. And you come from a different world than I do. You're black and I'm white. You have moved through the world in so many different ways than I have. But I felt when I read that, it was your heart speaking right up off the page to me. And I thank you. Well, thank you. It's, thank you. You know, I, I think thank you, and, and that means very much to me. And I, I think that's the hope. That's, I think, what every writer wants to do. I grew up reading books by, I grew up reading Russian literature. I grew up reading um, English, American, Indian, and loving books and loving stories and connecting to human stories. And I think that in the end, the fundamental things that we all have in common. And I think that often is what literature sort of tries to reach and grapple with. And um, so, it, you know, I, yeah, it makes me happy, again, to know that your mother took the book. <laughs> is there anything you shy away from writing, putting out there that you know that all of these strangers all over the world are going to read and then make you read on a stage in front of them? You know, not in fiction, because I think one of the wonderful things about fiction is that it, it, you're able to hide behind fiction. And I think that's why I trust fiction much more than I trust non-fiction. Right? Because um, it's when I was thinking, I remember reading somewhere, Gaeta Lee said that non-fiction is sort of the Ellis Island of literature, and he resents that. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think it really is the Ellis Island of literature. But I, I think that because non-fiction, because you're putting yourself at the forefront of your story. And because I think that the human urge is to self-preserve, I don't always believe non-fictional narratives because I think that we protect ourselves. I think that if I had to write non-fiction about something, I would think about protecting not just myself, but people I love. Yeah. But with fiction, even if I base characters on real people, there's a kind of radical honesty that I can have 
because it's not the real people. So I feel as though emotionally fiction is more true. And I don't think I shy away. I mean, because fiction is so fundamentally important to me, it's the way that I, I feel very grateful to be read, you know, to be here, and I, I still sometimes can't believe it. But, but even if I hadn't been published, I would be writing, because it's my way of trying to make sense of the world. And I think it allows me to have a certain kind of honesty. Oh. Yeah. Well, I've been building up to my big killer last question. That's, this is a big one. Right now I'm frightened. We at NPR, we did a, an exercise these last couple of years of collecting the best commencement addresses delivered across the country every year. And yours last year from Wellesley, 2015 address, made the cut. And my favorite moment in it is you describing why you decided to start wearing makeup. And you told a story, which I will summarize briefly here, which was you were at a dinner party in Lagos. You were a very young woman at the time, 22, 23, and this man was treating you with no respect, wasn't taking you seriously. She told the whole story beautifully, and then she paused, and you looked out at the class of Wellesley and said, I share this with you not as a, a great insight into gender inequality, but an ode to the power of makeup. He took me seriously. So this is my last question to you is, Talk to us about the transformative power of a really good lipstick. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> Reset the clock, we're going in. No, I really, I mean, I like makeup. Um, um, and I think, I mean, I can intellectualize it and say that I think part, it's also partly the idea that I refuse to accept that somehow feminism and femininity are mutually exclusive. Because mm. I really, <laughs> I, you know, I really, I really, I just find, and I think that from the time I was a child, I was raised by my mother, Grace Adichie, is the most, I mean, I, I'm actually not good enough for my mother. She'd be like, why don't you wear bigger earrings, more lipstick? Your hair needs to be, you know, so my, so my femininity actually isn't good enough for my mother. So you, should, you can imagine what it was like being raised by her. But I think as an adult, I, I, she's also quite lovely. I, you know, I don't have mother issues. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, I found myself questioning that idea, especially when I came to the U.S., because I think it's quite Western, that idea that if you want to be taken seriously when you're female, you cannot care about your appearance. Mm. Um, and I, I found myself sort of pretending. So I stopped wearing high heels, stopped wearing makeup when I came to the US, when I would go to writers' events, even though I grew up being told that this is the way you're supposed to present yourself to the world. You're supposed to look your best because that's the way to show respect to the people with whom you're spending time. But also, as a, as a feminist, I find it very offensive when people say, well, you know, you can't be too, you know, femininity means you won't be taken seriously. And I, and I refuse that. I insist that. You know, women should have the choice to be as, as, as feminine as they like, as they want to be, and still be taken seriously, right? We don't have to dress in men's oversized suits to be taken seriously. And my suggestion, perhaps, is that men should try wearing high heels to be taken seriously. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I think it would be a good idea because, you know, high heels help you with your posture. Shibamanda, I could talk to you all afternoon, but I actually don't think we'll be able to top that. As words of advice to send us out into the afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Chibamanda Adichie wrote the book Americana. She spoke with Mary Louise Kelly, a journalist for NPR and The Atlantic. Their conversation was part of the Washington Ideas Forum in September of 2016.
Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. A special thanks to the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.